The reading this morning comes from Romans 7, 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're so glad you joined us here at Sojourn. We have this conviction here that the uh, means of God are sufficient for the work of God. That is to say that we open the Word each week and we preach from it, knowing that this is the only thing in our arsenal that can impact change in the way that God wants. So we trust, put our trust in God's Word and in the normal means of grace like prayer, singing together, and gathering together. We trust those things to do the very work of God. So as we turn to the preaching of this word, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we want to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling we've received through your precious son, Jesus, and to be fully pleasing to you. So use your word to that end and purpose this morning. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There might be all kinds of descriptions of the law of our land. You might say some really good things and flowering things about the ways the law has, has helped and protected and done a lot of good. You might say some things about how the law has done some really bad things in our land, and you might dislike some of it. There could be all kinds of ways that we would relate to the law of our land, and I think the same could be true with thinking about the law of God. And indeed, there would be all sorts of opinions about that law. Some would have said, as Pastor Jay talked about last week, that more law is more life. Some would have said that more law is more burden, that the law has only ever been burden, 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 and now, finally, we're not under that burden anymore, so now it must not be important because we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Some then would then take the, the pointer of, of saying, which one, what's the problem in this world, and say, maybe it's the law that's actually the issue. And Paul wants to come in in chapter 7 and clear these things up. He wants to be very clear with the church that he's writing to, the, these, these saints that are in Rome that are gathered together. He wants to be clear that church is a mixed church. It has both Jews and Gentiles. And he wants to be clear with that mixed church to describe to them what their relationship to the law now is in light of this great gospel of justification by faith alone. Their righteousness which he so clearly has told them, only comes through their faith in Jesus. Their righteousness is found, right? Standing and acceptance before God is found not in the things that they can do, but in what Jesus has done. And they are connected to it by their faith. 
And when he has expounded that great gospel message, what this has done is it's given rise to this discussion to what do we say then in light of our justification by faith, in light of our righteousness coming not through the law, by faith, by faith alone, then what are we to do with the law? What are we to think about it? In chapter 3, verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, what did he say? Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He kind of leaves some tension there, doesn't he? It's apart from the law, but they bear witness to it. So what do we do with that? He says in the end of chapter 3, verse 31, Do we then overthrow the law? By no means. And then he just leaves the tension again to move on to justification, to further explain to them that it's by faith. And he uses Abraham. And then he goes to chapter 5, and then he talks about 6 and our union with Christ and slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness. And he picks back up the argument and the discussion of believers' relationship to the law in chapter 6, verse 14, where he says to them, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And he picked that discussion up in chapter 6, or chapter 7, starting in verses 1 through 6, that one's relationship to the law changes when death occurs. And death occurred in Jesus. And by your union with Christ, your relationship to the law has now changed because you have died along with him. And so he says of the law, it is now no longer binding upon you. Now that doesn't mean then that chapter 3, verse 31, that it's overthrown. But it does mean that it is of no advantage for justification. It is of no advantage for salvation. It is of no advantage for sanctification. You don't gain any standing with the law before God. In fact, as Pastor Jay faithfully said, if we want to use the law for our salvation, for our redemption, for our sanctification, any part of that, if we want to use the law for that, then he says you're cut off from Christ. Believers are instead bound not to the law, but they're bound to Jesus, to walk in newness of life. But that walk in newness of life will be like Jesus' walk. And what was his walk like? Very lawful. He kept the law rightly. And he then, in his law-keeping, frees Christians up by their union with him to walk in newness of life. A life that's walked in obedience to God. So believers are not bound to this law. They're bound to Christ. Which means they're to bear fruit. In chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, he says, You have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now you're meant to bear fruit for life. And it seems like he says the law comes around, it bears this fruit for death. So you could take verse 5 and say, well, maybe the law is the problem then, Paul. And it's that question that he picks up in verse 7. What then shall we say? Because the law has done what he said in verse 5, that the law is sin? The law. He, he's speaking of Mosaic law. He's getting ready to refer to a, uh, actually one of the Ten Commandments in coveting. It's exemplified, this law, in those ten, almost maybe summed up in them. And he says of the law that it arouses sinful passions that led to fruit for death. That's what he said in verse 5. And so it seems like the the human dilemma, if you take verse 5, the human dilemma before God is caused by the law, that the law is actually the problem. And so maybe we should look at the law and say, actually, that's sin. Or we could say sinful. Maybe that's what's wrong. If you've ever received a speeding ticket, you might have used a similar argument. Some of you are humble enough to admit that you may have actually sped and broke the speed limit. 
But then you might also then include that, but it wouldn't be an issue if there wasn't a limit in the first place. And so maybe the problem perhaps isn't that I sped, but that there's a limit. That's kind of the argument here, right? Like the problem is that there's a limit at all. Why is there a limit? Maybe that's wrong and sinful. That is the problem. That's the question of verse 7, that the law is the problem, not the lawbreaker. It's the law. If the law is the problem and we run into a law that we don't like, what do you think happens? All of a sudden, then we can ignore the law because it's the problem, not me. We might want to change it or alter it or reinterpret it. We might ignore it. We, we might need to reinterpret it because in light of the modern world and modern sensibilities, in light of what we know now that we didn't know then, I mean, they didn't know all the things that we know now. So maybe if the law is the problem, then we can reinterpret those things to better fit into our context that we sit in now. And what this does is relieves lawbreakers. It shifts the blame from, again, lawbreakers to the actual law. It is a means of self-justification, and it misses the very root of sin, which is not external, not an external problem. And it echoes Eden, where the response when God confronts the man and woman in their sin is, it was the woman that you gave me that caused me to do this. And to the woman, it was the serpent that deceived me. No, our problem is that we're born in Adam under the reign of sin and death with this corrupt, sinful nature. Our problem is very much an internal problem. And we might echo Eden in passing the blame and saying that it's the woman that you gave me or it's the serpent that deceived me or it's the law. That's maybe what is sinful and the problem. But we sin because we want to sin. And Paul knows this problem. And he knows that you can't come in verse 7 and say, maybe the law is sinful, maybe the law is the problem, maybe the law is sin. And he wants others to know it. And so to the question of verse 7, well then should we conclude that the law is sin? What does he say? By no means. His answer is as clear as his answer was in chapter 3. He says that we have righteousness apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Do we then overthrow the law by that righteousness, by that grace that we receive and that righteousness through Jesus? What's the answer? By no means. It's as clear as in chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, what are we to do? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or in verse 15 of chapter 6, what are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. And he answers with the exact same words here in chapter 7, verse 7. Is the law sin? By no means. If you're trying to point to the law as the problem, you're, you're missing the very root of sin. And it's interesting here that he picks a sin that is not an external sin. He picks coveting, which is very much an internal from start to finish. It's a matter of the heart from start to finish. I mean, it will have some external things for sure. The fruit will come out, right? But it, is, it can be all internally based where it starts in my heart. I want something that I'm not supposed to have because I'm not satisfied in God alone. And so I go after that thing, maybe even not externally, but inside my heart, I want it. He picks that. So the problem of sin, the very root of sin, is inside the heart. And he's, if you ask this question, you're missing the law's function. What does he say is the law's function? Verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. You're trying to point to the law as a problem. You're missing the function of the law. The function of the law, as he gives here, is to reveal sin. I like how John Owen puts it, he was speaking of sin as the secret traitor lurking within us. And he says this, that the law discovers this enemy. 
It convinces the soul that there is such a traitor harboring in its bosom. And what the law does is it discovers that sin. It reveals that sin. It's not like the sin wasn't there before the law. It's not as if it didn't exist. It's not as if sin doesn't exist for those who don't know the law. We saw that in chapter 1, right? They have a law that's bearing witness. They have a conscience that's bearing witness. That They're suppressing that truth. But what Paul says is the function of the law is it comes in and it discovers and it reveals what's actually already there. But it's there, it's not fully known, maybe not clearly known, maybe not distinctly known, but it's there. And the law makes it clear. The law makes it distinct. The law makes it fully known in a way that perhaps I think that we could say the conscience doesn't always do. The conscience, I, I love this, John Owen, he continues, the conscience will somewhat tumultuate, which I'm pretty sure is not a modern word, but you can get it. I get The conscience will tumultuate about it. It will go back and forth. It'll be a little bit wishy-washy. Well, is that sin? Maybe. I kind of feel something there, but we can kind of maybe justify it in this way, and that's what the conscience will do. We've all done that with some self-talk, right? Maybe that's wrong. There is a law there, but I don't know. That law is maybe a little bit old, or, or maybe that's the problem in the first place, or, you know, we can do all these things to let our conscience tumultuate within us. I think what can happen is that our conscience can bear witness to us, but it'd be a little bit like the man that Jesus heals. He's blind, and, and he uses two touches. You remember in, in Mark chapter 8, this man is blind. He touches him, and he says, what do you see? And he says, I see trees walking. Like he couldn't see clearly. It wasn't fully, clearly, distinctly known out there. Just, I think these are trees. And I think that that can be our lives apart from the law. But the law comes in, and what does it do? It gives the second touch to where it says, it's all clear now. This is definitely sin, and it's definitely sin before God. Consciences can be seared. Sin can be hidden, at times a little bit fuzzy. The nature of it unknown. Sometimes we think like there's, there's a problem, but we may not know that, as James says, like we're tempted, but what does that do? It stirs up desires that are already in us. We may not know the nature of it, and the law comes in, and it establishes the charge before God. It acknowledges that we are sinful before God. Whether we acknowledge it or not, the law comes in and says... You're guilty before God. The law comes in and says, as Nathan came in to David and said, you are the man. It fully, clearly, and distinctly discovers sin lurking in the soul, and it rightly identifies it, and rightly identifies it as sin and condemning before a holy God. We have a cordless vacuum now that we use all the time because it's a constant mess around our house and food, crumbs, stuff just everywhere. And this little vacuum has a light on it, right, right at the end, right on the floor. And you would never know how much stuff is on the floor until you turn that thing on and you see the light shining everywhere, right? It's like there's way more than I thought. Like I couldn't see half of it, which is good for our floors, right? I'm, I'm thankful for that. But then the vacuum light shines. And it's like, well, this is worse than I thought. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says of the law, he says... For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. It's that little light on the vacuum that starts to shine the light. Stuff is already there. It didn't put something on the ground, but it shows what's actually there. That's what it did for Paul. He says, I wouldn't have known sin. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. It shined the light. This is Christian Apostle Paul looking back on non-Christian Paul and saying, man, as a non-Christian, I wouldn't have known except the law came in and started shining the light. 
and it discovered sin all over. The law revealed to non-Christian Paul what his sin was, and it named it before God. Oh, that thing that's in your heart, that's coveting. And God said, don't do that. But this isn't where it ended. In verse 8, Paul continues, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He says, but sin, sin, that is sin that was already dwelling within him already. It was sin that was in him that the law came along to and said, don't covet. It was already there. The coveting was already there, and the law came and said, don't covet. And that sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. All right, so the vacuum, it shows the dirt, but it does more than that. It starts kicking up dirt. All right, it starts doing more than what we saw there. It's a little bit like a jack-in-a-box, where it's, it's again, it's there, and it's, it's coiled up, and the law comes and turns the handle. And what comes out? What's actually in there? Pops out. All that the law does is just turn the handle. It doesn't put anything in there. It's just turning the handle and out springs more sin. What comes out is, again, already there, but it's aggravated. It's provoked. The handle is turned. And so he goes from, I have coveting, to now it's producing all kinds of covetousness. Because more sin is produced. He says it's producing me all kinds of this. It sees this opportunity. It says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Dead, not that it isn't there, but perhaps undiscovered, unnamed, maybe hidden to him, dormant. At least there's no conviction there. There's no sense that this is condemning before a holy God in non-Christian Paul's life. And so the law comes in and it identifies the sin and it forbids it. And what that forbidden sin that he has already in his heart does is it produces more sin. It provokes more sin. That the provoking, the producing in verse 8 is this desire that's, again, already present, that now is now present for the forbidden. And we know a bit of this, don't we? That there's a sense that forbidden fruit is the sweetest. St. Augustine was speaking of his own life in confessions, and he said this. This is forbidden fruit, right? He says, I lusted to thieve, and I did it, compelled by no hunger nor poverty, but through a cloyedness and well-doing and a pamperedness of iniquity. For I stole that of which I had enough and much better. Nor cared I to enjoy what I stole, but joyed in the theft and the sin itself. A pear tree there was near our vineyard, laden with fruit, tempting neither for color nor for taste. To shake and rob this, some lewd young fellows of us went late one night, having, according to our pestilent custom, prolonged our sports in the streets till then, and took huge loads, not for our eating, but to fling it to the hogs, to the very hogs, having only tasted them. And this, but to do what we liked only, because it was misliked. And do you want to kind of like fight him after that? And yet we need to be a little bit slow, don't we? He's just describing the nature of sin that resides in all of us. It's the same in toddlers. When you tell them, don't do something, hey, don't touch that, what do they do? They look back at you and they think, maybe I should touch that. It's the same nature that's in us. Sinful natures, they find a sense of pleasure and sweetness in the forbidden. 
Because I think in that, there's this declaration that because this is forbidden, that I'm actually God, and I'm declaring my independence, that I get to do what I want. Don't we love that? I do what I want. No one tells me what to do. What are we saying? I want to be like God. That sounds like the garden. The lie that we won't surely die rings out, not in timidity in this forbidden nature that we like to partake in, but in rebellion. And the law as it is, it comes in and identifies and forbids sin, not just external acts, but, but desires of the heart. And what it does is it stirs that sin up, it turns the handle, and out pops even more sin. But notice again in verse 8 what Paul points to as the problem. It's not the law. It's sin. Paul looks back and says of old Paul, non-Christian Paul, not that there's a law problem with Paul, but that there's a sin problem in that Paul. That he had it in his heart. And yeah, the law provokes the covetousness in him. It provokes the sinful desires that are already there. And so then we could say again, is the law sin there? Is the law the problem there? Is the law sinful there? By no means. And when we look at our lives, or if you're a Christian and you look back at your life as a non-Christian, and you might think like, maybe the law is the problem. If that's what you're looking back to and pointing to, then you're off. By no means is the law sin or sinful. We are like Adam and Eve in ways that we want to shift blame. And we want to say that maybe it's the law that you gave us that's actually the problem. But the problem lies within us. And it's not just with external acts but desires of our heart, sinful desires that dwell within us. Sin residing in us, sin that's worse than we think, is the problem, and it is so easily provoked. It so easily springs with just the tiniest twitch of the handle. The law will do it, or other things will do it, but it will come out quickly. And even when it springs, we'd like to downplay it and say, actually, this is contained, and we'll stuff it back in the box. But that's not how sin works. When it's out... It wants more and more and more. Paul says that sin seized an opportunity. What was there and his coveting then produced all kinds of covetousness. He, he knows the reality of chapter 6, verse 19, that he had once presented his members as slaves to lawlessness. And what does that lead to? More lawlessness. Sin seizes the opportunity here through the law, through the law's prohibition of certain sin, and it produces even more sin. What a, what a different message than, than some of the Jews who would have said, actually the law comes in and it curbs sin. Paul says it stirs it. Maybe, it. maybe it might curb some sin externally. You might look a little bit better outwardly, and the world might be confused by that, but Paul says actually... It's provoking sin because the law's nature reveals sin and sin's nature is to get more. And so what happens when you put these together is it turns the handle and out pops more and then it just keeps going. One author says this, that the nature of sin is such that it progressively renders sinners more foolish and hard, entangles them even ever more firmly in its snares and propels them ever more rapidly down a slippery slope toward the abyss. Sin seizes opportunities such as the law presents and more sin is produced. And in that way, the law provokes more sin. Now what Paul does is he rewinds the tape on verse 8 a bit here in verses 9 and following. 
And he talks about the transition. The, the transition from what was, the, was going on when, between I've coveted and now there's even more covetousness. And what does it mean that, that apart from the law, sin lies dead? He kind of rewinds the tape for us a little bit. In verse 9, he's giving his perception as a non-Christian, as non-Christian Paul. So Paul the Apostle is looking back at non-Christian Paul and gives the perception of non-Christian Paul. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Non-Christian Paul with a limited perspective, limited perception of what's going on says, I was alive. I don't think that he was in denial. Looking back, he's not saying, hey, that in Adamness that I talked about in chapter 5 and 6, that wasn't true. He's not saying that. He's not denying that. I don't even think that Paul is saying that I didn't know the law. We think that Paul was likely familiar with the law at an early age. I think that he is speaking of, as one author says, being unperturbed by the law, self-complacent, self-righteous in the way he once lived before the turbulent motions and convictions of sin that we're talking about in verse 7 and 8 overtook him. So before that, I was once alive apart from the law, but then the law hit. And listen to what he says. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The law came in, revealed his sin, rightly identified it, and identified the sinful desires in his heart. It named it before God, bringing him into this place of conviction in some capacity before God. He stands condemned. And Paul says, I died. The handle was turned, the jack-in-the-box popped out, and this is what his experience was as a non-Christian. He says, I died. That's when the conviction hit. That's when sin seized even more opportunity to produce even more in him. He, he might have at that point claimed, at some point in his life we know, he, he tells us in Galatians and Philippians, he claimed some external righteousness that was far beyond those around him. He might have claimed that. He might even have had zeal for the external keeping of the law, but inwardly there was a battle raging. Inwardly his desires were identified as sin and he couldn't shake them. And perhaps the turmoil and conviction that he sensed even led him to even more zeal to external law-keeping, even more unrest in his external law-keeping, so much that he has to, I'm going to have to keep going. I'm going to have to take this to another level. I'm going to go far beyond even those around me because he knows something is not right inside him. And so maybe I'll go and I'll tear down the church. Maybe to ease his conscience or maybe to get life in the law. Verse 10 he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. When the conviction hits, he might have thought that the path to life, though now I've died, the path to life is going to be through law keeping. And so I'm going to double down on that. And I'm going to seek these people out, even all the way to different towns. And I'm going to try to drag them away too, because they've got to be opposing the very name of God. And so I think that the path to life is the path of law-keeping. That's not completely ignorant, is it? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses instructs the Israelites, be careful to do the whole commandment that you might live. And some might have read that and say, like, if we obey God and His command, if we do some law-keeping, then we will be rewarded with life. And that the law would grant them life. They could get life through it. And we know that wasn't the function of the law, right? That the law was showing that for those who have faith in God, who are casting themselves, even in Deuteronomy 8, casting themselves fully upon God, what the law is doing is showing what the good life 
before God and under God's reign and rule looks like. It wasn't made to bring them life. It was showing them something about the good life. And even if they went and looked to the law to say, if I obey this and I will be rewarded with life, that creates a massive problem. You know the massive problem with that? They couldn't keep it. Externally, maybe they could look like they were keeping it. They might have had it together in some capacity. But internally, the very desires of the hearts, the desires that the Ten Commandments even come after, like coveting, they were guilty of. And what does Paul say in chapter 2, verse 17? You want to look to the law? If you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, you want to, you want to do that? Here's what he says. He kind of concludes, verse 25. That's a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision is uncircumcision. It's of no value. Verse 29, he says, The Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision, a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. You can't get it by the letter. You, you can try that, but if you fail at some point, then you know that you can't get it by the letter. And so your circumcision, whatever that is, becomes uncircumcision. The law doesn't grant life. It doesn't change hearts. And that's where the problem is, isn't it? With their very lives. With the sinful desires of their hearts. What the law does is it comes in and reveals the sin that's in the heart. The law comes in and says, the wages of that sin is death. You deserve condemnation before God. Paul thought that that was going to bring him life, and the law comes in and only brings him death. He says, sin deceived me. He's describing his disillusionment with the law because he tried to use the law to find life through it. But now he understands as he looks back, but that's not the design of the law. I, I like this kind of catchy poem, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Right. Run! But it gives you no power to run. It does not change your heart. It just says run. But Paul looked at it and he said, run, John, run, the law commands, and let's go. And I can do it. It'll get me life. And so he tried to run, and it only brought him death. The law did for Paul, when he was using it for life, what it was meant to do. It just kept discovering, kept revealing more sin within him. The light kept shining from the vacuum, and it kept kicking up more dust. And I think when we come to this point at Paul's life, we can imagine the disappointment and the disillusionment that he must have faced. Because I think we face something similar. Now maybe we, we don't use the law and say, I'm going to try to find life in the law. Maybe we don't use the law for that, but we're using something to find life. Perhaps we think there's life in morality, a kind of law, right? Whatever my moral picture is, like I'm trying to find life in that. And so if I can just do the right kinds of things, and behave the right kinds of ways. Maybe there's life in that. Maybe there's life in my rule keeping. Maybe there's life in my religiosity. Maybe if I do good enough. Maybe if I love enough. Maybe if I give enough. Maybe if I do something, then I might be able to find life. And the reality of that is that we might be able to put together a decent resume in the world's eyes, even within the church's eyes. Didn't Paul? The religious people of his day would look at his resume and say, he must be righteous. He's far beyond me. He put together quite the resume to put before the Lord. But what did that resume do? It deceived him, he said. He had no standing before God. Don't 
be deceived. If we try to use anything, even good things like the law, and rule-keeping can be good, and giving, and loving, all those, if we try to use those things, anything, to find life, it will only prove to be death. Do not be deceived. Paul says, sin, seize that opportunity and deceive me. I thought that maybe I could find life there, but it only proved to be death. Now, Paul has been really clear, hasn't he, in the book of Romans, how to find life? Chapter 6, verse 4, he says, we have newness of life. Where's that found? In dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. In our union, in our faith, Union with Christ, there's we have newness of life. In chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Through what? Law-keeping, rule-keeping, doing good enough, doing the right things, being religious. Is that how we find eternal life? No, it's through not something, but it's through someone, through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we try to use anything else to justify us, if we try to use anything else to find life, it will only turn out to be death to us. And get this, it's beyond that. Not just if we try to use anything else, if we try to use Jesus and something else, it will only prove to be death to us. Any mix of Jesus and something else will only prove to be death. The law, rule-keeping, morality, religion, loving enough, giving enough, doing something, that, those don't grant life. The law comes in, it reveals sin. It doesn't grant life. And sin is ready to spring and seize the opportunity and produce more sin. And he says, it killed me. Through that, it killed me. It condemned me before God. He felt in some sense the wages of his sin before God. He says, I died. Killed me, verse 11. So what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Instead, he comes to a very different, I think even kind of strange conclusion. If you're seeing all the law has done for him in his life, you think, yikes. But listen to what he says in verse 12 about this law. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul looks at the law. He's, he's Christian Paul, looking back, Apostle Paul, looking back at the law, and he says, holy, righteous, good. He's overflowing like the psalmist. You know, the psalmist, they say weird things about the law, like it's sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. Paul's doing that. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. He knows what those words mean. He even says that even through all of this experience that we just talked about in verses 7 through 11, he says, even with all that experience, I can look back in the law and say it's holy and it's righteous and good. Why? Because his problem was discovered. The law did its job, and it discovered the traitor that was lurking in his soul. The, the light from the vacuum shone in his life, and it saw and told him there's law residing here. The problem didn't reside in the law. The problem didn't reside in something external to Paul. The, the problem resided in his own heart. It's the problem of sin. And the cure for the sin problem did not, and in fact does not lie in devaluing the law, diminishing the law, or calling it sin. Paul says plainly, it's not. It's not sinful. It's not to be devalued. It's not to be diminished. 
Those things are not true. He says that the law is holy and righteous and get this, good. What a word. He says it's good. Did you see what it produced? You see what it provoked? More covetousness. Like the sin was in him and it was ready to spring and it sprung and the law was the thing that was turning the handle. It kicked up all sorts of dust in Paul's life and he then looks back and says, that was good. What the law did was it made really clear that he was condemned before God. What the law did was it would produce death. But what the law did was it made him ready for a Damascus Road experience. The law discovered Paul and it made him ready to be knocked down by a blinding light and overwhelming voice on a road. It made him ready to receive when the gospel came. And he says back to this blinding light and voice, Who are you, Lord? And then he was set off, ready to use the law rightly. The law revealed a whole bunch of sin in Paul's life. The the dirt that was kicked up was more than he thought. But in finding Jesus, or rather we could say being found by him, he got the whole Christ. Amen. And so he looks back in the law and says, actually it was good. Because it prepared the way as it was meant to for me to encounter that Christ. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. The gospel brings better news. <laughs> right? Better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Church, can you... Look back and call the law holy, righteous. Christian, can you call the law good? I think that might depend on how we see it, on how we look at it, perhaps on how we use it. Martin Luther said this, Therefore, we must be careful to use the law appropriately. If we used the law in order to be accepted by God through obedience, then Christian righteousness becomes mixed up with earned moral righteousness in our minds. And if we try to earn our righteousness by doing many good deeds, we actually do nothing. Don't hear something there. Hear nothing. We neither please God through our works, righteousness, nor do we honor the purpose for which the law was given. But... If we first receive Christian righteousness, which we know so clearly through the book of Romans, is a righteousness that we haven't earned or deserved or worked our way into. It's only ever received through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we receive Christian righteousness, then we can use the law, not for our salvation. It wasn't meant for that in the first place anyway, right? But for his honor and glory and to lovingly show our gratitude. Doesn't that, isn't that what Paul ends? Doesn't he look back and say, it's not my righteousness, but it's holy and it's righteous and it's good. Using the law or some version of the law, however we want to do it, to be accepted by God? Well, that neither pleases God nor honors the law. That might lead you to the question of verse 7. Maybe the law is the problem. And Paul would say, no. The law was given to show the problem. The law has been shown to be holy and righteous and good. And when the law has its holy and righteous and even good effect... What happens? We first receive the righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. That's where the law drives us. 
It drives us there by showing us all the wickedness that's in our hearts. It shows us our sin. It discovers the the traitor that we're harboring within us. And once it's discovered, we can start maybe trying to get our way out of it. And what does the law do? It keeps kicking up more and more. It only produces death. It shows us the futility of even law-keeping for our righteousness because it's just not to be found there. It shows us the futility in finding righteousness anywhere else. So how is the law good? It's good that it points us that there's no righteousness to be found anywhere. And then we hear the good news. Oh, there's righteousness to be found, but it's only in this one. It's only in Jesus. Amen. So we need to be a people who let the law have its full effect. Let it have the whole effect on our lives. Kicking up all the dust that it needs to kick up. Let it show us what it needs to show us. Let it have its whole effect that we might have a whole Christ. It has whole effect when it shows us that we're condemned before God, that we might then search and find our all in Christ Jesus. If that's you... We together have this confession. It's a confession that we deserved condemnation and death for our sins, but that that condemnation and death actually fell on another. And we remember that condemnation falling on our Christ in the Lord's Supper, where we remember His body broken, His blood poured out, not because He deserved it, but because sinners deserved it, and He willingly took their place. And we come to the table, the Lord's Supper, and we say, In my place, condemned, he stood. I deserve to be condemned. The law told me before God that I deserved his judgment and wrath. But then the perfect law keeper came. And he bore the curse of the law for me. He became a curse so that I might be redeemed from underneath that curse. If that's you, this supper's for you. Be reminded of what Jesus has done. That you were condemned, but you've been set free through his death and resurrection. If that's not you, you need to know you stand condemned. That only... There's only righteousness found in Christ. There's only a way out from this condemnation through Christ Jesus. And so don't take the meal. Take Christ instead. Repent of your sins and trust in him for your salvation. Let's pray as we prepare for this meal together. Uh, Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the truth of your word. We need the truth. And your word is truth. We need it to stand over us. And we need to submit underneath it. And the truth of your word is that we stand condemned before you. But that Jesus Christ came lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, so that any who trusts in Him would not be condemned any longer, but would stand as the righteousness of God. That we have righteousness only in His name, but we have it in His name. As those who have received this righteousness, I pray that our time together around the table and partaking of this meal would only further strengthen and bolster that faith which is a looking to Christ, not to ourselves. And I pray that as we hear your truth of our own condemnation without Christ, that those who don't know Jesus would be convicted of their sins and compelled to turn away from them. Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. May it continue to have its way among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.